Would you pray with me? Almighty God, our rock and our redeemer, we gather here this morning in anticipation about what you will say. So I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be truly pleasing in your sight. Our rock, our redeemer, our comforter. Father, we ask humbly, teach us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's what Jesus was doing that day. He was teaching his disciples. Teaching his disciples about the value of persistent prayer. And to do so, he used this image of this widow woman and this judge to do so. But before we get there, I just want to share sort of an illustration I came across this week. I was searching online trying to find customer service. And I was trying to find a number that I could call. Because I was having an issue and I just, I, I was tired of trying to type something in and having this video chat with whomever it was on the other end, trying to explain my situation, and I could not seem to articulate the urgency of my situation. So I kept asking, can I speak to a person? Can I speak to a person? And I searched on their website, and when I got finished with the video chat, or the virtual chat, I got this survey. Did we meet your needs? <laughs> and I'm like, no, you didn't meet my needs. In fact, I wanted to speak to a real person. Thank you for taking our survey. <laughs> It's like, really? I mean, don't, don't you want to find somebody that you know will hear what you're saying, that will listen to what you're saying? That's what we all want. You know, someone humorously quipped that if you want your spouse to listen to you, to pay attention to everything that you say, to be riveted to your every word, to remember everything you said, just talk in your sleep. <laughs> someone also quipped that there was this pastor one day that went before the altar to pray and he knelt down and he said, dear God, and a voice from above said, what is it? Later they picked him up off the ground because he had fainted. <laughs> you know, the reason those stories are somewhat humorous is that all of us at some point want to know that someone cares enough, someone loves us enough to listen to what we have to say. That someone cares enough to listen and want to know what we think. And so when we pray to God, when we pour out our hearts before him, when we're vulnerable before him, sometimes we wonder, maybe just for a little bit, is anybody really out there? Is he really listening to my prayer? When millions of other people are praying to him, does he really hear me? Is he really listening? That brings me to this question. What do you do when it seems like prayer isn't working? What do you do when it seems like no one's listening? C.S. Lewis said in his book, A Grief Observed, he said as he wrote this book, it's a book that he wrote after his wife had passed. And he was devastated. He was in despair. And he said he almost lost his faith. And he said, when you pour out your heart to God and you pray to him and it doesn't seem like somebody is listening, when it doesn't appear that there's anyone there, when all you hear is silence, the danger is not coming to not believe in Jesus. He says, the real danger is coming to believe dreadful things about him, like he doesn't care and he's not listening. So what do you do? That's why Jesus taught this parable. Jesus taught this parable to his disciples, and he teaches that to us this morning. 
so that we would have a right understanding of God, that we would know the truth about God, that the circumstances of our lives, the circumstances of the world would not betray the truth of Jesus. He's teaching us the truth about God, the truth about ourselves, and the importance of persistent prayer in keeping with that truth. That's what he longs for his disciples to know. That's what he longs for you and I to know. That's why he teaches this prayer, uh, this parable of the widow and the judge to his disciples. Now, to give us some context before we get to the parable, I want to give you the context, hopefully, for this situation. This parable is in the middle of a story that began in chapter 17. It starts in chapter 17, verse 20, where Jesus is asked by the Pharisees, when will the kingdom of God come? And to that, Jesus' reply is saying, the kingdom of God is not something you will be able to observe. People will say, there it is, or here it is. And he's saying, that will not be the case. He's really telling them, and he's telling his disciples, the kingdom of God isn't a visible kingdom that you expect it to be. God is not going to come as this warrior king on earth and destroy the Roman Empire. No, the kingdom of God will be something that is spiritual, something that you see within a person. Then he turns to his disciples and he says these words that I think cause some great consternation within them. He says, when that day comes, when the Son of Man comes, he said, you will desire to see me to his disciples, but you won't see me because you will be dead. It will happen after I, you are gone. He said, but in the meantime, I have to suffer many things. I have to suffer many things and be rejected. That you will see. But when the Son of Man comes, it will be just like that time when Noah was building his ark and people were partying and people were living their lives and destruction came on the earth with a flood. It'll be just like the time of Lot and Sodom when people were marrying and having parties and concerned with their own life and fire rained down from heaven and destroyed everything. That is what it will be like when the Son of Man returns. And those people who are concerned about their life, only their life, about what they do, about where they live, with no concern whatsoever for God's plans, for God's future, those who seek to save their own life, maintain this life, will lose that life. And they ask, where will this happen? And he says, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And what he's saying to them is, the signs will be what I have said. And it will be at the time of completion when all have heard and all have rejected. When the right number have rejected and the right number have received the word of God, God will come. And those who are truly dead, those who are spiritually dead, their bones will be picked clean. Kind of some harsh words, right? Some real scary stuff. And I'm sure Jesus saw that in their, in their faces. I'm sure, I'm sure he saw that in their hearts. And so that's why Luke tells us that Jesus tells them this parable. He tells them this parable so that they would always pray and they wouldn't lose heart. That they would continue to pray and they would not be afraid. Even in the midst of terrible circumstances, even in the midst of everything that you see around you because he warned them of the persecution and the fate of their own lives. But even what you see in the world, you can take heart because God is still in control. 
That's what he wants his disciples to know. So he teaches them this parable. One more point of context before we get to the parable. I said on earlier on this sermon notes card, you see the story here from a text called Ben Sirach. It's from the Apocrypha. It's books that were written in the intertestamental period that aren't part of the scriptures, but they are useful for learning. And this story that Jesus is about to tell them, this parable that he's about to tell them, is a familiar story. It's actually a story that was written in the Apocrypha, in Ben Sirach. Jesus borrows that story. And so he sort of works as what you would call today a script doctor. Does anybody know what a script doctor is? I didn't either, so Pastor Mark is the one that told me about it. But anyway, a script doctor is someone who comes in during a film when they're stuck and the, and the dialogue just isn't working or the scene just isn't working. And so they call someone, someone in from the outside. They come in, rewrite the script, rewrite the scenes, and make it better. That's what a script doctor does. You don't know about it because they're never credited in films. They do so incognito. But Jesus here is taking a well-known story, and he's coming in as a script doctor, and he's making it better. He's actually making the story true. Because the story in Ben Sirach is to teach us something about God. But Jesus is coming in and saying, yeah, well, let's get that right. And so he uses this familiar story to do so. And his disciples would have understood it, and the people listening would have heard this familiar story. And that story that you see on your paper starts like this. He, meaning God, will not ignore the supplication, the prayers of the fatherless, nor the widow when she pours out her story. When her tears are on her face, God will see her situation, and he will come to the rescue. He who cries out to God, the man will be vindicated. God will make sure that he is vindicated, and he will crush and pay back the oppressor of the one that's petitioning. God will take vengeance upon that person. That's how basically the story in Ben Sirach goes, telling the story about what God will do on behalf of his people. Sort of. That's the background for the story. That's the story Jesus uses. He takes part of it, he transforms others, and he omits other parts of it to tell the truth about God so that his disciples and you and I would not lose heart. So he begins the parable this way. He says, there was a certain judge in this certain town. And this judge in this story, you see and you will see, is not God, where the judge in the story of Ben Sirach is God. This man, this judge, is not God because it goes on to say that this judge neither feared God nor respected man. This judge didn't care what God's word had to say. God's laws had very specific commands for judges and how they were to judge cases. And they were to hear the orphan's case first and they were to hear the widow's case next. That was commanded to them. But this judge didn't care because he didn't hear a case. He didn't care what God's word had to say. He had no regard for God and he had no regard for his fellow man. The only regard he had for his fellow man was how much money you could pay him to hear your case. History tells us that he would have had people around him, his underlings, that would have been taking bribes from people and people would have been offering money. And if, when you offered enough money to have your case heard in your favor, the underling would have turned to the judge and nodded and said, you need to hear this guy's case. And when they would announce the case, I'm sure everybody went, oh, that's over. Because we know what's happened, but that's the way the business was conducted. You had this unjust judge. Ben Sirach gives us God's judgment, but 
in reality, they had judges at this time that behaved just like this man. They would have had this reference point for this kind of judge who paid no heed to anyone. And he didn't care what men thought. They would really, you would say about this person in honor and shame culture, he has no shame. No shame whatsoever. There's nothing you could say or do to compel him to, to hear your case or to or decide on your behalf without paying him. Nothing you could do. He only had regard for money. It was to that man, to that judge, that the widow petitions. This widow comes to that man and says, hear my case. And we know that by her coming and saying to him, and that she keeps coming and saying to him, grant me justice against my adversary, we learn some things about her as well. We learn that she's alone. She doesn't have any male uh, relative to hear, to go and plead her case because she's going. The court would have been no place for a woman. Women were not welcome. They were not invited to the court. And so by her being there, it tells us she has no male relative to speak on her behalf. She has to come day after day after day to plead her case. And that also tells us she has no resources. She has nothing to pay a bribe with. Otherwise, she would have done so already, but she doesn't. And so she has to come day after day to get her case heard to the man who cares nothing about her. But yet she comes and she comes and she comes and she comes. She has no value in his eyes, but that doesn't mean her tactics are ineffective. Because it goes on to say in the next verses that for some time he, the judge, refused but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet just because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. He's saying, I'm sick and tired of hearing her voice. It would have been a crowd of men and there would have been this murmur, this tone to it. Now, above all this tone of men murmuring would have been this woman's voice crying day after day after day, Grant me justice, grant me justice, grant me justice. And he's saying, finally, after all these days of hearing this woodpecker on the, on the tree, he's like, let's just shut her up, let's hear her case, and let's get her out of here. And really, this translation at the back that says she's afraid that she'll come and attack him is really a poor translation. Because in this culture, she could have come and did what she did forever. And no one would have said a word to her. No one would have brought her any harm. She could say vile things, and no one would, would hurt her in public. Now, if a man did what she was doing, he could be killed for that. But she could continue to do that as long as she didn't touch him, as long as she didn't put her hands on him. Once she put her hands on him, they could throw her out. What really is saying here is he's saying at the end, I'm afraid this headache is never going to go away. She's going to give me such a headache that I'm never going to be able to get rid of it. And the only way to get rid of it is to hear her case. Just to shut her up, I'll hear her case and get rid of her. That's the only value she has in his eyes, to relieve his pain. Now in the Ben Sirach, it goes on to say that God, the just, will hear the case. And it does a switch. Or in the Ben Sirach, it says that the man will find justice, the man will hear his case heard, and the man will be vindicated. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't switch to the male figure. Jesus stays with the widow and vindicates the widow. In this culture, the man was honored. The women were less than. 
She was even less so because she was a widow and she had no means. But Jesus says her case was heard, her case was vindicated. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about Jesus. Jesus gave women human dignity. Prior to Jesus, women were regarded as inferior beings, religiously speaking. Jesus comes and says, this woman has worth. All people, regardless of their means, have worth in God's eyes. God cares about the least. God loves his creation. Not whether or not you can pay him, not whether or not you have enough righteousness, but God loves all. One of the other differences in Jesus' parable that makes a drastic change to the story told in Ben Sirach is that Jesus leaves out the crushing of your enemies part. In the Ben Sirach it says, God will come and he will crush your enemies and do so in a very violent way. But Jesus doesn't go there. He leaves that completely out. You remember back in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. Earlier on in Luke 17, it says, there will come a day when God will come. And it will be worse than anything that you can imagine. And God's enemies will be crushed. But in the meantime, you need to pray for those people. You need to pray for those people that have turned their back on God. Because in that day, it will be horrible for them. So pray for your enemies. Love them. And pray for those that persecute you. That's the truth about what God desires for all men. That's the truth about what God desires for you, that you would pray for those people, that you would continually do so, being persistent as the widow. And one other thing that, God, that Jesus leaves out of this text that you see in the Ben Sirach, Ben Sirach says that your prayers will be heard when you perform the right service to the Lord. When you do righteous works, pleasing to God, when your life is cleaned up and you're acting well, then God will hear your prayers. When you pray enough, when you come persistently, when you keep coming and you make your prayers known, you get the whole room praying for you, you pray enough, maybe then God will hear your prayers as long as your service is pleasing before him. But how does Jesus answer that question? How do we get our prayers heard by God? He goes on to say in verses 6 and 7 that learn a lesson from the unjust judge. He gives us this contrast for a purpose. Even he rendered, even this unjust judge rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will give justice to his chosen people who cry out to him? This unjust judge hears the case because of the persistent widow just day after day, day after day, day after day. But God, but God, hears the cry of his chosen people. Why does God hear your prayer? How do you get God's ear? There's nothing you have to do other than pray. Because you are his chosen people. He hears your prayer. There is nothing that we have to do. Because you are his children, he longs to hear your voice. He desires to hear your prayers and answer them and come to your rescue. To remind you that he does value you. 
that amongst the millions of, millions of voices, he hears you. And he cares about you. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. In the midst of all of this that you will see, my death, in the midst of everything that you will see afterwards, cry out to God. Do not allow the circumstances of your life to drown out the truth about your Heavenly Father, that He hears your prayers and that He cares about you and He loves you and He will come to your rescue. But back to my original question. What do you do when it seems like prayer isn't working? What do you do when it seems like no one's listening? Jesus is very clear. Keep praying. Keep praying. The lesson in this text is that there is value in persistent prayer. But why? Why is there value in persistent prayer? Why do we keep praying when we know God hears us and God will answer? You guys remember back in the Lord's Prayer, the one weekend where we heard this riveting message about give us this day our daily bread? You guys remember what we said about why we pray that prayer? One, this guy did a great job that weekend. I thought you would remember my message better than that. <laughs> I'll remind you this morning. We said that we pray that prayer, give us this day our daily bread, so that we would be reminded that everything that we have is a gift of God. That the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the places where we live, God has given those to us. And whether we pray that prayer or not, 99.9% .9 of the time, we're going to wake up tomorrow morning to find air in our lungs and the sun in the sky. And even though we don't even pray that prayer, God fulfills those promises to us. So why would we pray this prayer? We pray this prayer so that we keep our focus on God and that we were reminded that he is in control, that he is sovereign, that he is looking over us and that he hears our prayer, that we do not allow the circumstances of our life to rob us of the truth of God's love for us. And when we keep praying, when we keep praying, we find that we're less afraid because we know that God is watching over us, that God is with us. I don't know if you're familiar with the author Jill Briscoe, but she's a Christian author, and she wrote this article in Christianity Today, and I thought I'd share it with you this morning because I believe it says some really good truths about God. She says, Though I was barely six years of age, I well remember sitting by a roaring fire on a Sunday during World War II. Our family had fled the bombs that rained down on us one night, chasing us hundreds of miles away to the beautiful English lakeside district, William Wadsworth country. The mists were gone, and a storm had broken over our heads. The rain, like giant tears, slashed against the, against the window pane, and the thunder grumbled away as if it were angry it had to hang on all day. I didn't like storms, and I was old enough to understand that a bigger storm was raging, a war involving the entire world. But at the moment, it seemed far away. The fire was warm, and my father was relaxed, reading the paper, sitting in his big chair. Suddenly, 
As if, as if he were aware I needed a bit of reassurance, he put down his paper and smiled at me. Come here, little girl, he said in his quiet but commanding voice. And then I was safe in his arms, lying against his shoulder and feeling the beat of his heart. What a grand place to be. Here, I could watch the rain and listen to the thunder all day. I realized how my Heavenly Father shelters me from my storms, the storms of my life. When times of sorrow swamped me at my mother's funeral, I sought the reassurance of my father's presence. When winds of worry whipped away my confidence as I faced gangs of young people in street evangelism, I glanced up to see my father's face. When floods of fear rose in my spirit as I waited in a hospital room for the results of frightening tests, I sensed my heavenly father saying, come here, little girl. I climbed into his arms leaned against his shoulder, and murmured, Ah, this is a grand place to be. And as I rest in that safe place, knowing that my father is bigger than any storm that beats against the windowpane of my life, I can watch the rains and listen to the thunder, knowing that everything is all right. Here I can feel the beat of my father's heart. That is what Jesus longs for each of us to feel the assurance and the love in the beating of our Father's heart. The Bible's clear that prayer is that communication between the one that's praying and the heart of God. We're in prayer where we come and we sit on our Father's lap and we tell him what is at our door. We share with him the good and we share with him the things that are troubling our hearts and weighing us down. And it's in that prayer time that he reminds us that we are loved, that he hears every single word we say. He so longs for us to experience that love. That's why he sent Jesus. So that we could hear the truth about God, know the truth about ourselves, and understand the importance of persistent prayer in keeping with that truth. So that no matter what the circumstance, we would know that we are loved. And so when I pray... I'm reassured that God is at work because he always has been and he always will be. This evangelist one day was speaking at a conference. He was a missionary that had spent his life overseas and he was telling the story and he said, when I was 21 years old, three of, three of my friends and I went to hear Billy Graham speak. That night, he said, I came to faith in Jesus Christ but my three friends did not. And so I committed that night that I would continue to pray for each one of them, and within a month, one of them came to faith. And just a couple of years later, the second one came to faith. And I continued to pray every day for the third. That night, he was telling this story. He was 88 years old. And he said, I prayed every day of my life for this, for my friend. And I will continue to pray the rest of my life for this friend because I know that God is listening. And I know he will answer my prayer. That's what Jesus longs for each of us. We would spend the rest of our lives praying. He concludes this story by saying, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? He's saying to his disciples, will you continue to pray the rest of your life? Will you teach the people around you and your descendants and their descendants to continue to pray? Will you keep praying 
until the Son of Man returns. So that more and more people would come to a knowledge and a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Will there be faith on the earth? Will you continue to pray? That's what Jesus longs for all of us. To know the truth about God, that we are loved. And to be reassured through prayer that he is who he says he is. As we watch him work in this world through us. I pray that you would be diligent, that you would persevere, that you would be persistent in your prayers, that he would daily remind you whose you are and how much you are loved. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, it is truly remarkable, dumbfounding, that you hear my voice amidst millions of voices. But yet your word reminds me that you know the hairs on my head. You know them by name. Where can I go that you are not there? Father, those words are scary and they're reassuring at the same time. They're scary because I know you know what's on my heart. I know you know the true me. And so we come before you this morning confessing those things that you already know about us. We confess to you this morning the things that are weighing us down, worrying us, and causing us to doubt whether or not you are listening, whether or not you care. At the same time, your word reminds us that you do care and that you are listening. And you have been working for our behalf since before time began. And yet you will continue to do that until your son returns. Father, we thank you for your patience with us for your persistent pursuing of our hearts. And so we pray to you this morning, praying the words that your Son taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.